We often find the last words, the dying words of people as sometimes inspirational, sometimes intriguing, sometimes humorous. Oscar Wilde on his deathbed humorously looked around and said, the wallpaper is appalling. One of us will have to go. On a more sobering note, Thomas Hobbes, as he was dying, said, if I had the whole world, I would give one day. I would give it to live one day. I shall be glad to find a hole to creep out of the world about to take a leap into the dark, he exclaimed. And then he died. Today we are going to look at three of Christ's dying words or dying statements that he makes. There's about seven different statements that Jesus makes from the cross. And these statements give us a window into what was going on in Jesus' dying on the cross. And we're going to think about these three statements so that you would believe and trust in Jesus' saving work. The first I'm calling a statement of substitution. It's a statement that was read in your hearing already. It's a statement that the gospel writers choose to record it for us in its original form, in the Aramaic form in which Jesus uttered it. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, or my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Notice the text says in verse 45 that it was the sixth hour. So Jesus is there hanging on the cross. And and Matthew records that it's the sixth hour, which we might think that that's six in the evening or six in the morning, except for the fact that the Jewish day began at 6 a.m. So the sixth hour was actually high noon. And it's at high noon that Matthew records that darkness fell over the land. Pitch dark at high noon. You may say, well, that, that sounds like an average day in northeastern Ohio. <laughs> uh, but you have to understand the desert climate of the ancient Near East. It was regularly sunny as it is even to this day. And yet, Darkness fell over the face of the earth for three hours. And then at 3 p.m., at the ninth hour, Matthew records, this is when Jesus raises his voice in the midst of his agony, in the midst of his pain and suffering, in the midst of his own dying that he cries out these words, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Now, if you're familiar with the scriptures, you know that these words actually uh, are a citation from Psalm 22. When David writes in the midst of his agony, in the midst of his suffering, and he contemplates the reality of God abandoning him. But then Jesus adopts these words for himself and his own experience as he's hanging on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why would Jesus utter 
such words. I mean, wasn't the Father and the Son in a perfect, loving relationship? On one occasion in John chapter 4, Jesus says that it is my food to do the will of the Father and to accomplish the work that he sent me to do. We hear the voice from heaven at the baptism of Jesus, the Father saying what? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We hear the same words recorded at the transfiguration of Jesus. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. But now here, at the culmination of Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus says that he is being forsaken by God. Jesus was the most righteous man who ever walked the face of the earth. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is tempted in all points as we are, and yet was without sin. On one occasion, John chapter 8, Jesus says, which of you accuses me of sin? So there was no secret sin in Jesus' life. There was no rebellious streak in his heart. He perfectly obeyed. And, And the scripture records that The cross was the culmination of his obedience and subjection to the will of the Father. Philippians chapter 2 says that he was obedient, obedient even unto death, even death on the cross. But here on the cross, Jesus is saying that God has forsaken him. Why would Jesus be forsaken by God? Well, this takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Because you remember, Adam and Eve, they too lived in perfect communion with God. They too had a perfectly loving relationship with God. But you remember the moment that Adam and Eve rebelled against their Creator and ate of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil immediately, something radically changed with their relationship with the Creator. All of a sudden, they were aware of their own nakedness, and they began to run from God. They were no longer walking with God in the cool of the day, but instead running and hiding themselves from the Creator so much that He's calling out to them, Adam, where are you? There was now a rift in their relationship. And why was there a rift? Because of sin. But again, Jesus had no sin. Or listen even to Genesis chapter 4 and verse 14. Cain, after he had murdered his brother Abel, it says, Behold, you have driven me away. Uh, You have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden. Cain's relationship with God was disrupted because of his murderous activity. Isaiah 59 and verse 2, But Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. The testimony of Scripture over and over is that sin always ruins relationship, and we know that even on a personal level. 
When was the last time you were in conflict with your spouse? Sin has come between you and there's distance in that relationship. Or sin between you and a sibling. Or sin between you and a friend. Sin, whenever sin comes between our relationships, it causes distance. But again, Jesus had no sin. Well, there's a clue as to what's going on here. If Jesus had no sin, why would he be forsaken by God? Notice in our passage, I mentioned that darkness fell over the face of the earth. For three hours, there was darkness. Well, the last time in biblical history in which there was darkness over the face of the earth was in that penultimate plague over the Egyptians where God was mocking the Egyptian deity, the Egyptian sun god Ra, and he turned the lights off for three days. And this was a sign, a picture in this plague of God's judgment upon the wicked Egyptians for their thumbing their nose at the Creator. And so here again, now not for three days, but for three hours there's darkness. Is this God's judgment upon the Jewish people? Is it his judgment upon the Romans? No, my friends, you know the answer. The judgment is upon Jesus. And the judgment and the darkness and the wrath is upon Jesus, not because of his own sin, but because of our sin. That's why it is a cry of substitution because in that moment of his agonizing, the rift of his relationship between him and the Father so much that he would cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was bearing in his body the full throttle of the Father's wrath, not because of his own sin, but because of my sin, because of your sin. It's a statement of substitution, friends. This is why the apostles would write later on, the apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, that God the Father was treating Jesus as a sinner on the cross, even though Jesus was without sin, because he was taking our place. He was our substitute. Friends, I, I, I don't know how this works out. How does a person in space and time over the course of three hours suspended between heaven and earth take all the punishment of hell that every sinner who would ever believe deserves to be under for all eternity. I don't know how it works out. But I know that's what's taking place because that's what the scripture tells us. He cries this cry of divine punishment. He cries this cry of being forsaken so that you and I would never have to utter that cry of being forsaken by God. He utters this cry of divine punishment as he undergoes the wrath of the Father so that you and I would never have to utter that cry. 
It is a cry of hell. As all those who are in the confines of hell will cry every day, all day, for all eternity, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But no one who has ever trusted in Jesus as their only hope will ever have to utter that cry. That's the first statement. The second is a statement of sufficiency. This we see in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, and verse 30. Each of these statements comes from a different Gospel. Just to give you a heads up. In John 19 and verse 30, it says, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. What is the significance of this statement? Well, I've hinted at it in the point. It's a statement of sufficiency. What does it mean to be sufficient? It means to be adequate. It means to be enough. In other words, we we might wonder, okay, Jesus bore punishment on hell, and we see that by this statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But but maybe, maybe he just took three quarters of the punishment, and I have to take a quarter of it. Or maybe he took, maybe he was very generous and he took 95% of the punishment and, and I just got to spend a couple thousand years in purgatory and then we're good. Except for this statement, he says, it is finished. It is finished. It is completed. Something of the significance of this statement can be found when we looked earlier on in the Gospel of John in the midst of the upper room discourse, just hours before Jesus was hanging on the cross, he's teaching his disciples uh, in that upper room between chapters 13 and 17 that we find ourselves in on Sunday morning. And in his high priestly prayer in John 17 and verse 4, listen to Jesus' prayer, part of it. He prays to the Father. He says, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. So as Jesus anticipates going to the cross the next morning, he's talking to the Father, and he tells the Father that he has accomplished the work that he gave him to do. It's the exact same phrase, it is finished. And In other words, he's saying, Father, I've finished the work that you've given me to do. So then a good question is, what is the work that Jesus was given to do? Well, he tells us earlier on in the Gospel of John in chapter 6 and verse 38 and 39, if you ask Jesus, Jesus, why did you come to planet Earth? He would give this answer. I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. You say, what is the will of him who sent me? This is the will of him who sent me. That all that the Father has given me, I lose none, but raise it up on the last day. So the Son's mission was to die for a people that had been given to him by the Father. 
This is sometimes called the, this is for you Latin students, us pastors, we just act like we know Latin. We know like 10 Latin words. The pactum salutum. The sacred agreement. Sometimes it's also called the covenant of redemption. It's the idea that in the eternal council of the triune Godhead, there was an agreement within the triune God to die for a particular people, to save, to rescue a particular people. In fact, uh, the English Puritan John Flavel, in his book Fountain of Life, he, he kind of dramatizes this eternal counsel. Listen to what, what he writes. The father says this, My son, here is a company of poor, miserable sinners that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? The father asks the son. The son responds, O my father, such is my love too in pity for them, but rather then that they should perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all your bills that I may see what they owe you. Lord, bring them all in that there may be no after reckonings with them. And at my hand you shall require it. I will rather choose to suffer your wrath than that they should suffer it. Upon me, my father, upon me be all the debt. The father responds to the son, but my son, if you undertake for them, you must reckon to pay the very last might. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare you. The son says, Content, father. Let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, and though it impoverish all my riches, Empty all my treasures, Father. And so fast forward from that eternal counsel within the triune Godhead in the space and time some 2,000 years ago, Jesus carries his end of the agreement up as he's dying on the cross and he says, it is is accomplished. It is finished. He did it. He paid for all the bills of all those who had been given by the Father to the Son. Jesus paid for them all. He endured all the agonies of hell for them for those three hours 
on Calvary's hill. And it was sufficient. It was paid in full. In fact, archaeologists have found receipts, ancient receipts, that have stamped on them this Greek word, tetelestai, as a way of writing on that receipt, paid in full. Jesus pays for it. And so, my friend, you sitting here this evening, your responsibility is to trust in Christ alone that when he died on that Calvary's hill, he was paying for your sin in full. If you try to add to that work, if you try to intermingle in some of your merit, some of your good deeds, my friend, you ruin it all. Imagine with me for a moment, you have your kitchen remodeled. The contractor comes in and he demolishes your kitchen and spends several weeks remodeling it, putting in new cabinets, putting in new flooring, putting in new ceiling, all of it. Finally, you look at it with satisfaction. It's beautiful. And then your husband, who's not to be known as Mr. Handyman, he's looking at it and he says, I, I think I'd like to make some adjustments on the countertops here. And he goes out in the garage and gets a sledgehammer, starts wailing on one of the countertops. You cry, what? What are you doing to my kitchen? You see, friends, when we try to add to the perfect, sufficient work of Jesus, we're undoing it. We're ruining it. Our filthy, stinky rags of righteousness only mess it up. Instead, you lay hold of Christ in him crucified, his death and resurrection on your behalf, and you don't add to it. You trust in it alone, my friend. It is your comfort in life and in death. He paid for it all. Don't try to pay for it yourself. It's insulting. If somebody, imagine Christmas, somebody gives you this beautiful gift and you pull your wallet out of your pocket. Here, let me pay you. For it. That's insulting. You don't do that. That's just rude. You don't pay God back for this great gift. You receive it with a glad heart, with joy, with thankfulness, and you love him. Romans eleven six says, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. You can't mix grace and meritorious works. So that's the statement of sufficiency. 
The statement of substitution was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now this last statement, this comes from the Gospel of Luke, a statement of certain salvation. Luke chapter 23 In verse 39, it begins, Luke records a conversation. It would appear that from a human vantage point, much of Luke's source in recording many things in the gospel and acts was probably Mary herself. We know that Mary was at the cross as Jesus was dying there causes us to wonder if Mary was there eavesdropping in on this conversation. In verse 39, it says, One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us! But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Today. You shall be with me in paradise. It was a statement of certain salvation. But let's back up a little bit in this story because it's, it's intriguing, right? These are the two guys who are hanging next to Jesus as they, all three of them are being crucified, dying a slow, agonizing, and painful death. And the fascinating thing is in the go- that, that Luke is the only gospel that records this repentant fellow on the cross. Uh, in fact, according to Matthew 27, verse 41 through 44, I read part of it uh, in the opening of this service. It says, in the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him, mocking Jesus, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is, the, he is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. And then in verse 44 it says, The robbers, plural, the robbers, plural, who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. In other words, Matthew records that both of these guys were mocking Jesus at one point. And one of them continued to mock Jesus, but the other one stops. He stops and actually begins to rebuke this guy. Notice what he says there. He says in verse 40... Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? 
He's like, come on, man. We're, we're both about to meet our maker. And you're guilty. I'm guilty. But this guy in between us, I don't think he's guilty. We're getting what we deserve. But this guy, he's not. Verse 41, we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. What we see here is this man is beginning to realize that he deserves exactly what he's getting. He's having pains of conscience. He's realizing that he's in big trouble. He's about to die and stand before God. And so what does he do? He says to Jesus in verse 42, Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's, it's just a tiny little plea for mercy. Remember me? When you enter into your kingdom, and, and, and here, even in this tiny little plea for mercy, there, there is a tiny seed of faith that acknowledges that Jesus is a king, that he is the king. That he has a kingdom. And he asked Jesus for mercy that he would but remember him when he enters into his kingdom. And Jesus says to him, truly I say to you, you today, he says, today you shall be with me in paradise. That's an amazing statement. Jesus promises this fellow who has this tiny little seed of faith, this tiny little plea for mercy, that that very day he would be in paradise with him. What we gather from this is, is in many ways a, an amazing passage that teaches us grand truths about salvation. Namely, we see this man repentant, right? He was mocking Jesus and then he wasn't mocking Jesus. He went from mocking Jesus to being a, an apologist, a defender of Jesus. We see him come to an end of himself him realize his own bankruptcy before God, his own guilt, acknowledging he deserves to be punished there. We also see there a seed of faith where he's asking Jesus for mercy. And Jesus grants him mercy. Think about it, friends. This, this fellow, he couldn't jump down off the cross and start going to church or synagogue. He couldn't jump down off the cross and get baptized. He couldn't jump down off the cross and, and start, you know, committing himself, I'm going to read my Bible more regularly. 
All, all those things are good things, right? But this demonstrates to us that salvation is purely by grace. And it's purely by faith, the empty hand that receives the gift of God. This man couldn't do any good works. He could but change his disposition and mind towards Jesus with a heart of repentance and faith. Friend, if you're sitting here this morning, this morning, this evening, I'm used to preaching in the morning. If you're here this evening and you have not yet trusted in Jesus, it's not rocket science. You don't need to climb a mountain. You don't need to start an exercise program, a diet program. You don't need to, you need to but trust in Jesus. You, you don't even need to come down here with a tissue box. No, you can do it right from your chair. You just need to have a heart of trust that cries out for mercy like that sinner in the parable, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And with a heart of trust, you lay hold of Jesus as the king who died on behalf of your sins. And Jesus' promise is for you. You will be with me in paradise. Maybe not today. I don't know, though. Maybe. But you can be with him in paradise. And for the believer, you also can have confidence that the promise is true. The promise is true if you but believe. I mean, this, this guy here, we might, be tended, we might be tempted to despise his confession of faith. I mean, I don't know if there's a clear articulation of... Uh, the doctrine of election there in that confession. I don't know that, that, that he understands the pactum salutum. I, I don't know that he, he could tell me all the different attributes of God. Now all those are important things and, and we should be learning and growing in our Christian faith, but it's just such a, such a simple faith. Such a simple faith. Friends, Jesus' dying words enable his people to die well. They give us the hope and confidence that we too on our deathbed can have assurance and confidence that when we die, we will go to heaven. Because we have a substitute, one who was forsaken in our place. We have a statement of sufficiency. It is finished. All the sins have been paid for. And we have a statement of certain salvation, a promise of paradise for those who believe. So friend, you don't know when your appointment with death will be. But may your dying words be leaning into Jesus' dying words. Let's pray.